Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to continue our way through the book of Matthew. We'll be in the first 12 verses here this morning. There are groups of people seeking signs from Jesus. And really, this key sign that we each need in our lives is remembering Jesus' past work. Because remembering Jesus' past work is the key to our future faith. So I'll begin reading in Matthew 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. We'll pick up there in in just a few minutes. But I was thinking this week back to, I don't know, I guess it's 18 years ago now, or almost 18 years ago, that shortly after September 11th, uh, 2001, when the planes flew into the World Trade Center in New York City and then the Pentagon and the one landed in Pennsylvania, that uh, George W. Bush had really what was his most iconic moment as president, as he stood at ground zero and on a bullhorn, he was talking to uh, survivors as well as first responders, and he, he said these words, I hear you, and he says, the rest of the world hears you. And that brief period of time in my adult life was a time where our country actually was pretty unified. Politically, culturally, we came together as one because what, what brought us together really was uniting against a common enemy. Uh, this idea that there were these extremists who had come onto our soil and attacked us, and the country really came together at that time. Now, it didn't take long for the uh, divides among us to evidence themselves, and you don't have to spend long, like right now, if you meet someone new, you don't, kind of don't dive into politics right away because it doesn't take long for the blood pressure to get up. It's not something you jump right into. But I was thinking about that, and what was it that brought the country together then? Well, it was really uniting against a common enemy. It was the idea that our difference with this person outside was enough that even our small differences we could set aside for uniting against a common enemy. And often that's what brings people together. You take groups that are, I don't know, kind of disparate or disconnected, and you give them a common enemy and and it brings them together. So common conflict can bring people together. That's really what we have happen here in this passage because we've got two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, they were not friendly with each other. They were kind of like the, the far right and the far left in terms of first century Israel. They didn't spend a lot of time hanging out. They had very different belief systems. But they were both part of kind of this elite group, the Sanhedrin that ruled Israel. But within that group, they were opponents. But today we find them united. It's very unusual that you would find this at all. And what is it that unites them? They're united in their hatred for Jesus. So their dislike of a common enemy actually brings them together. So they come out to trap Jesus. But as we'll see, true unity can't really come from opposing something. It has to come from uniting uniting in common mission and common purpose. Well, the end of chapter 15 tells us that Jesus has traveled to the region of Magadan, and that's really around, if you look on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, where it kind of juts out almost like the, the, the hump on, the, the bump on the corner of Africa, you see Magdala. Well, that's obviously where Mary Magdalene is from. It's also the area of Mag- Magadan. So this is where Jesus is at this point. 
So we don't know the exact region of this particular town, but it's somewhere in this region. And it's right here that Jesus confronts these religious leaders right on the western shore there of the Sea of Galilee. And the first thing we see in verse 1 is that these leaders come to test Jesus. They come and they make some unreasonable demands of him. And there are tests and there are tests. Have you ever sat down or been in a conversation and you knew no matter, no matter what answer you gave, it was going to be the wrong answer? I mean, it wasn't a genuine test. It was a trap. So the person asks you a question, and you know, if I answer this question, if I answer yes or I answer no, either way, it's going to be the wrong answer. And that's the kind of situation that, that Jesus is here. The verb that we see here is, is, it is test, but it's the kind of verb that, that indicates they're trying to trap him in a set of outcomes. So no matter what happens, Jesus will fail this particular test. So there are sincere seekers that come to Jesus throughout his life and ministry with questions. They're asking to find out who he is. Could he be the Messiah? But that's not what's going on here. What's going on here? These people have determined that he is not the Messiah. And so therefore, no matter what he says, they're going to use what he says against him. And the particular sign they ask him for is a sign from heaven. So what they're asking for is some sign of divine significance to Jesus. To demonstrate that he is authentic. Now, let's see, we've seen Jesus feed 5,000 people and 4,000 people. We've seen him uh, heal the sick. We've seen him uh, heal the lame. We've seen him uh, give sight to the blind, uh, speech to the, un, to, the, to the mute. We've seen Jesus literally raise the dead. And they come to him and say, could you show us a sign that shows you you're who you say you are? They're, they're not sincere. They're asking for a real sign. These other signs they're not trusting in. So Jesus responds then with a proverb in verses Two and three. Matthew doesn't include this, but, but, uh, but Mark tells us that Jesus basically heaves a sigh at this point. <sighs> Fine, we'll do this again. I mean, he's, he's been down this road before. It's like, uh, I don't know, do you ever feel if, if you have either young kids or old kids, it doesn't matter, you feel like you have the same conversation over and over and over again? all right, fine, we can do this again. And so Jesus kind of heaves aside. He's like, fine, all right, fine. We, we, we will have the conversation one more time. And they've asked for a sign from heaven, and so he points them to literally the sky. Now, he's not going to give them exactly what they want, but he, but he gives them a proverb, really. And it's a proverb that we use uh, to this day. Uh, red sky at morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors Delight. So, so we, we even know this today, and I mean, it's been known for apparently t- at least 2,000 years because Shakespeare himself quoted it, you know, 500 some years ago. And so, this is a well known proverb and has been for a long time. And it's not just a proverb, it's actually based on science. So, you have a red sky at night, and what this indicates is that there's this. There's a high density of dust particles, which makes the sky that color, and so there's a high-pressure system, which means that what's going to follow is pretty good weather. And if you see the same color, you see red sky in the morning, it means that a high-pressure system has likely just left, which means a low-pressure system is coming in. A low-pressure system is a storm. And so, you know, it's not 100% in fact all week our kids have been saying, is the sky red? You know, trying to figure out, you know, is, is, you know should we take warning or should we delight in what's coming tomorrow? And so, uh, so there's, but there is this, you know, scientific reason for this. And some time years, you know, centuries ago, really, people discovered this and, and potentially what will bring good weather and what will potentially bring uh, stormy weather. Yet Jesus points out at the end of verse 3 that you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. I mean, any, any young child can look at the color of the sky and if they know this, kind of figure out what's going on. But he says, you do not know how to interpret the signs of the times. In other words, the fact that they are asking for a sign, another sign, is an evidence of the fact that they can't interpret these signs, all of these signs. And so Jesus then condemns them in verse 4. 
Jesus doesn't mince words when it comes to leaders who are hypocrites. He calls them an evil and adulterous generation, he says, seeks for a sign. So this generation is evil because they've turned from the Lord. They've left his word for the sake of their traditions, their commitments. They've ignored acts of mercy and love for the sake of advancing their own agendas. They're spiritually adulterous because they've left their commitment. They claim to make vows to God and yet have abandoned their vows and have been walking after the gods of their own hearts. These aren't idols literally erected, but their traditions, their judgmentalism, their proud condemnation of anyone who's not quite like them. And Jesus has no time for this. So he goes on to say that no sign will be given to this kind of people except the sign of Jonah. Well, this is at least the second time that we've seen Jesus reference Jonah like this. In Matthew 12, a group of scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus and they they asked him for a sign. He said the same thing there, that no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. And then do you remember what he said? He said, for Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights, and then he will be lifted up. Jonah is mentioned nine times in the New Testament, five times in Matthew, four times in Luke, and every time he appears, it's to demonstrate that faithless people don't get a sign, another sign. I was reminded this week of another story Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a story about a rich man and a very poor man named Lazarus. Now, We don't know. There's a good bit of debate to this day over whether Jesus is telling a parable or whether he's telling an actual story, something that is actually happening. We don't really know that, but the point is the same either way. The rich man lives a life of wealth, ease, luxury, kind of grows fat off the land, and he, he lives in a house on the hill. But Jesus tells us that outside the rich man's gate is a very poor man named Lazarus. Lazarus is lame. He, he lies at the rich man's gate, within the rich man's gaze, and yet the rich man never helps him. In fact, he's so poor that as he has sores or as he aches, uh, Jesus tells us that the dogs come and tend to him. The dogs come and lick his sores, and that's how he finds relief. But as the story goes, both the rich man and Lazarus pass away. They die. And when they die, they find themselves actually on the flip side of the scale. The, the rich man is now at the bottom of the hill, so to speak. He, he is in torment and flame, and, and Lazarus is in heaven. And as the rich man is there, he's suffering the, the, the pain for all of his sins while he was here on this earth. And as he was there, he cries out, and he cries out to Abraham in heaven. He says, can you send Lazarus? He knows his name. Can you send Lazarus? Just have him just give me one drop of water to relieve my torment. And Abraham says, no, there's, there's, a, there's a gap here, and, and we can't cross over that gap. And he says, well, then if he can't come see me, send him. And he remembers at this time, he remembers he has five brothers who are living. And he says, send Lazarus to my brothers so that he, will, he can warn them and tell them of the danger to come if they don't repent, if they don't turn, if they don't trust the Lord. And he says, if someone comes back from the dead, they'll listen to him. And then Abraham says something rather remarkable. He says, they won't listen to him. Because if you do not listen to Moses or the prophets, even if someone comes back from the dead, you will not listen to him either. You see, the point is that if we do not respond to God's revelation... We won't respond even to very clear signs from God. And that's exactly what's going on in the life of these scribes, these Pharisees, these Sadducees. 
Jesus doesn't play games. And he particularly doesn't play games with those spiritual people who set themselves up as judge over other people. He doesn't play by our rules. God has revealed himself. Psalm 19 tells us that he has revealed himself in creation. The heavens themselves, these very skies that he's pointing to, declare the glory of God. John tells us that Jesus reveals himself to us in the written word. And Hebrews 1 tells us that God in these last days has spoken to us through his Son. God has revealed himself in creation, in his written word, and in the living word, Jesus Christ. So if you don't respond to God's written word, don't imagine that you respond to some miraculous vision from heaven. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 talks about the same idea. He says, Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, if you want to know God, if you want to know the true God, the way to God isn't to demand of God that he reveal himself to you. He has revealed himself, he says, clearly to us. If you want to know God but aren't sure about all this, the way to God, rather than demanding of God something, is to ask God, God, show me. Show me who you are. God, reveal yourself to me. God, God, I'm seeking. Because Hebrews 11 tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God, but God rewards those who diligently seek him. So if we come to God sort of with our, with our hand closed and fist, God, you show me who you are. God offers that kind of person nothing but, 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 a, but a hard heart. But if we come to God with open hand and say, God, reveal yourself to us, God says he rewards that kind of seeking heart, that kind of heart that comes to God genuinely seeking and says, God, show me. So open your Bible. Read the Gospels and pray, Lord, open my eyes. Lord, help me see. Help me see this Jesus. Help me see him for who he is and keep praying and keep reading. And if you feel right now, God, opening your eyes to who Jesus is, would you turn from your sin and ask God to save you? In Matthew 12, Jesus tells us that just as Jonah was three days and three nights, Jesus would be three days and three nights in the earth and rise from the dead. Jonah's deliverance from the the fish results in the deliverance of a single city, but the deliverance of Jesus, the rescue of Jesus, the rising of Jesus from the earth leads to the rescue of anyone, anyone at all who will come to him, even a Pharisee or a Sadducee. Through faith in Christ, Jesus is greater than Jonah, as he himself says in Matthew 12, 41. Something greater than Jonah is here, and it's Jesus Christ. We move from their proud demands to the blind eyes of the disciples in verses 5 through 12. Let's read those verses now. Matthew 16, 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. James Montgomery Boyce was the 
pastor from, from like the late 60s until the year 2000 when he passed away of the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And when he was preaching through this section, he called this dumb and dumber. Now, that may make you think of Jim Carrey, but he's, he's pointing here to the idea that as dumb as the Pharisees and Sadducees were, the disciples are even dumber. I mean, they're with Jesus every day. They're eating, walking, talking, sleeping, living. They were literally spending their lives with Jesus, and yet they don't understand. They don't see Jesus for who he is. When Jesus leaves Magadon, which is again on the, the western shore here, he sails north, and we think it's probably to the town of Bethsaida. So we're going to zoom in and kind of up a little bit here. And so he's in the town of Bethsaida probably because we'll see in verse, uh, verse uh, 13 next week that Jesus ends up in Caesarea Philippi. He's traveling north. So he sails across the sea and probably up to the northern shore here. And it's somewhere either on the journey or at this northern point that Jesus has a conversation with his disciples. And he has it, he's kind of pointing back to this earlier conversation, but it's at least some hours before, maybe some time before. And so Jesus is kind of connecting dots that his disciples aren't uh, connecting. Well, as they travel along, Jesus uh, has this conversation. The first response we see from the disciples is they're confused. Uh, they're having a conversation about food in verse 5. Uh, we forgot our lunch again. I mean, speaking of dumb and dumber, this is not the first time they've done this. Apparently, they're just constantly forgetting their lunch. They're walking at the door and forgetting to take with them something to eat. This has happened before, and, and apparently it's something they do over and over again. So Jesus makes kind of a weird comment to them in verse 6, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, uh, since they don't understand what Jesus means, uh, they have a comment about what he means. There's this discussion amongst themselves, and they conclude that he must be talking about leavened bread. So all they can think about is their empty stomachs, and, and then they conclude Jesus said something about bread. Now, I mean, if it's like apparently this is something that, that humans just do because we see this over and over in the life of the disciples. Jesus says something, and they think about food. Maybe you have someone in your house like that. No matter, what, no matter what the subject is, it's always about food or when are we going to eat or what are we going to eat. Or I'm hungry, can I have a snack? So, so there's this conversation and it's about food. Now, Jesus' point seems kind of obvious as we sit here today because it's explained for us and we have these kind of categories for understanding it. But, but imagine a, a different scenario. Uh, imagine that, I don't know, you're going camping and you're sitting around a campfire and, and, and you're like, okay, let's get breakfast ready. And then whoever is responsible for bringing breakfast said, I forgot breakfast. And at this point, you're, you're, you're annoyed because, because there's, there's no food there. And, and you're talking about it, and, some, and you know, someone makes a joke and says, well, I, I don't know what you brought, but you better look out for your mama's biscuits. And so, and so there's this conversation, and, and you immediately think about this person and food. And so there's no food there, and Jesus makes a comment like, you better look out for so-and-so's food, and, and they immediately think of food. And so we kind of hear it in a spiritual context, but I think they're just hearing it like, where's lunch? Where's breakfast? And, and they literally don't have anything to eat. So now Jesus is going to set the record straight in the coming verses. So there's a larger lesson that Jesus wants the disciples to understand. There are a lot worse problems in life than just missing breakfast. And it seems that's, a, that's all they can see. So he uses a title for them that occurs only five times in the New Testament. He says, Oh, you of little faith. If you remember, Jesus also said this to Peter when Peter was walking on the water toward him. And then he, he took his eyes off of Jesus and began sinking in the waves. He says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? It always refers to their lack of faith. So 
immediately we're clued into the fact that understanding what Jesus says isn't primarily about kind of mental ability or intellectual insight. It's a spiritually understood lesson. Jesus says something here that the Spirit of God must help them understand. It's a crisis of faith, not a crisis of hunger. Well, the most important characteristic of a good disciple, any disciple, not just Jesus, is trust in the teacher, a sense that the teacher can can walk them where they need to go. Well, Jesus doesn't criticize the disciples for failure to understand intellectually, but rather a failure to see him for who he is, and we'll see that in a moment. What's been said that accusations harden the heart, but questions soften the will. So Jesus asks now a series of five questions. First, he says, why are you talking about bread? Secondly, he says, can't you see? Then he says, don't you remember the bread for the 5,000? And fourth, don't you remember the bread for the 4,000? And again, he asks them, don't you understand? Jesus' question in verse 9 is significant. He says, do you not yet perceive? They've walked with Jesus, eaten with Jesus, heard his teaching, They've seen his miracles, but they don't yet understand who he is. They have seen enough to understand Jesus' true identity. They want to see, but like the Pharisees, they can't yet see or don't yet see. So Jesus reminds them, and he he goes to his two most memorable miracles, miracles that they participated in, feeding 5,000 people and then feeding 4,000 people. And they're certainly, at least when it comes to bread, the most memorable miracles. As many of you know, I grew up in a a large family, so one of my deathly fears in life is getting to a meal and not having enough food. Uh, In fact, it was was common practice. The the first time the meal goes around, if you do not take, the the food goes around the table, if you don't take what you want, you will not see it again. So it's like, and that's just something you learn, you know, so the person who kind of watched everything go by and took a little, and then they're like, okay, oh no, there's there's no more, there are no more rolls. Like you just learn that lesson early in life, you can be two, three, four, and you realize like if I want to roll, I take it now because if I wait, it's gone later. Uh, we were, uh, and so, so I have this, we, we, uh, I'm, I'm come from a household of 11 people within the house, okay? So I'm used to seeing large quantities of food to feed that many people, uh, four or five teenage guys, just a lot, a lot, of, uh, a lot of food on the table. Well, uh, shortly after we were married, we had kind of had our first guest, and they were two single guys that were friends of ours, and they were traveling. We were in Virginia Beach, Virginia at the time. We traveled through, and we were going to fix a meal and have a meal with them. And so we're talking about fixing food. And uh, we're just, I think it was fettuccine Alfredo that we were making. And I was like, we need a lot of food. And so I don't know how many, you know, boxes of fettuccine that we dropped in. But, I mean, we ended up with this giant bowl of fettuccine Alfredo. And I remember Liz kind of making fun of me afterwards. She's like, you're used to seeing dis- different quantities of food. Because we had four of us there. And even with three, like, hungry guys, we could not finish. I mean, there was a, a giant amount of food. In fact, we took it over to a family of Six or seven were like, hey, you want leftovers? And we, we served them dinner as well because we couldn't even eat all of the leftovers. And I was, I was thinking about this, and it's like when, when, when you're coming from a place where you're like, you want to make sure you have enough food no matter what. Jesus feeds 5,000 people and 4,000 people plus women and children, and they, they have enough bread to feed everybody, Matthew tells us, until they're satisfied. No, no one's hungry at the end. And, and then they have several baskets left over. The disciples lack a faith here is forgetting that even though they didn't bring bread, they have the creator of the universe with them. He's just fed thousands and thousands of people, and they're worried about feeding 12 people. Now, and this is kind of a cardinal rule in life to this day. I mean, 
Someone asked me recently, if you could have only one food in the world, what would it be? I said, I'm kind of cheating, but they have to go together, cookies and milk. I mean, that's really, to me, the best food ever created is cookies and milk, but you have to have them. I'm a dunker. You have to have them together. And so if, if you go to the fridge and there's no milk in the fridge, it's like panic. Like, okay, there, there's, there's no milk here. But if you finish the milk and you know there's more milk in the fridge, you don't need to panic because there's more milk, right? I mean, it's like if someone takes the last of the milk, but there's more milk, it's not a big deal. But if someone takes the last of the milk and there's no more milk, now it's time to panic. And, and, and it's like literally th- these people have a fridge full of milk. They have, they have the creator of the universe. They have the, the man who can speak anything into existence, the man who's taken a few loaves of bread and fishes and fed thousands, and they're worried about milk. They're worried about not having enough bread, and Jesus has come to them, and he said, I'm not talking about bread. Bread ain't no problem for me. I can make, make bread whenever I need it. How can you fail to understand? And then he reiterates his point, beware of the leaven, he says, and, he, and he, I'm sure he emphasizes it differently, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The disciples know. They've seen Jesus do this more than once. They've seen him create food from nothing, feed thousands of people with one small lunch, And yet, like the disciples, we are forgetful. We are forgetful of the past work of Christ. We are forgetful of the past faithfulness of God. And so for those who walk with Jesus, the Christian life is often less about learning things we don't know than it is reminding ourselves of what Jesus has already taught us. Reminding ourselves of what we already know. Reminding ourselves of what is true. Of course, we're always learning, always seeing new things, growing in Christ. And the beauty of the gospel is like, it's, it's like a diamond. You can hold it up and, and you can know it forever, but you, you turn it and you turn it and you see different aspects of it. And it grows more beautiful with time. It never grows boring. So you, the smallest, the simplest child can understand the truth of the gospel. Yet the oldest person who's walked with Jesus their entire life sees new facets of it all the time. Sees the love of God at work in their lives in new ways. But it's also true that for us today, the battle for kindness isn't knowing whether or not we should be kind. It's reminding ourselves of the kindness of God to us and how that should live itself out in reference to other people. The battle for truth isn't really knowing about whether we should or should not tell the truth or whether God does or doesn't hate lying. It's reminding ourselves that God is true even if every man is a liar. And and the point is that we don't know whether complaining or gossiping is wrong. That's not the point. The point is reminding ourselves that we live here accountable to a holy God that Jesus died for the sin of my complaining and my gossip. We remind ourselves, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good use for building up, that it may minister grace to those who hear. The Christian life is about remembering what God has taught us. In Deuteronomy 6, the children of Israel are renewing uh, their covenant commitment with God. They've been led out of Egypt, but they haven't yet entered the promised land. Then God commands the people, and you know these words probably, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your might. Well, that part we know, but then he tells them this, and this is rather remarkable. He says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Bind them on a, as a sign on your hand. They shall be frontlets between, before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts on your house and on your gates. Why does God go to, go to such lengths to say, write them everywhere, teach them, remember them? Why? Why do they have to go to so much effort? Because in verse 12, he gives us the answer. Lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. But can you imagine forgetting that? Forgetting God delivering you from slavery, leading you from bondage through the land to the land of promise. We are such forgetful people. 
It's not just a them problem. It's an us problem. We forget the word of God. God delivers us. We forget. God saves us. We forget. God heals us. We forget. God loves us. We forget the love of God. We forget. We forget. We forget. And that's the way I am. And it's not just with this. I forget. It's why I tell people, I'm pretty good if I write something down. If I don't, look out. I I live off of of to-do lists. If I have something to do, I try to put it on a list. And then if I'm driving or somewhere where I can't write it down, I remember, okay, all right, there are two things I need to do when I get to this place or two things I need to write down. But the problem with that is sometimes by the time I get there, what? I forget those two things or those three, whatever it is that I needed to write down. I have, I have to write it. I have to remind, remind myself. So, so what's the solution? Well, a few weeks ago uh, here at Ashley River, we had music camp. And on that night, if you were here, there were, I don't know, 70 or 80 kids on this stage, and they, they all sang. And they had prompts, certainly, but some of them memorized a lot of lines. They, they memorized songs, and, and, and they sang them. And, and how does that happen? Does that happen by, I don't know, uh, people just sleeping and waking up and, and all showing up, and remarkably, they've had the same revelation from God, and they can, no. It, it's, it's rehearsing those things, right? It's, it's reminding yourself of those words. It's, it's, it's rehearsing those, those tunes. We rehearse. And so we need to do this too. Rehearse. Rehearse the grace of God in saving us from sin. Rehearse the grace of God in meeting our needs. Rehearse the grace of God in healing our past illnesses. Rehearse the grace of God in loving us more than any earthly father ever could. Remember, rehearse, remember, rehearse, remember, rehearse the past goodness of God. Then write it down like your grocery list, like your to-do list. Remind yourself of what God has done. Remind yourself of God's grace in your life. I mean, right now, you know where to find your favorite show, your favorite restaurant, or your favorite team. Can you find the grace of God in your life? Have you looked for it? Do you rehearse it? Remind yourself of the remarkable evidences of God's grace to you. We're forgetful people. So we've got to remind ourselves. And after Jesus reminds them, they come to a point of understanding in verse 12. Verse 12, then they understood. Look at the progression of the disciples' faith. Look in verse 8. Jesus says, O you of little faith. Verse 9, do you not yet perceive? Verse 11, how is it you fail to understand? Verse 12, then they understood. He wasn't talking to them about bread. He's talking to them about these teachers, the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees teach very different things. But they're united in one thing. They are seeking to blind people to the identity of Jesus, the Messiah. And the Pharisees accept the tradition of the elders. The Sadducees reject it. The Pharisees tend to be middle class, and the Sadducees tend to be upper class, wealthy elites. The Pharisees aren't interested at all in politics, and the Sadducees are political to their very core and seeking to work closely with Rome. So these groups are different and yet united in rejecting Jesus as the rightful king. You see, it doesn't matter how you reject Jesus or how you get there, but rejecting Jesus, any rejection of Jesus, is an eternally judgeable sin. In the next paragraph, Peter will finally declare that Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is a Savior who can feed a crowd, who can be patient with disciples. And Jesus is a Savior who will save anyone who comes to him in faith. But we must see him for who he is and recognize that his grace is our only hope. God, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us, the grace you have shown us through your son, Jesus. God, the grace you show us giving us strength for each day. 
God, help us remember. Help us remember who you are. Remember your goodness. Remember your grace to us. God, I pray for those here who are seeking. God, I pray that you will open their eyes to Jesus as Savior. God, help us respond now to your word. God, move us, change us. Help us see one more aspect of Jesus. Help us become more like him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God has...